You're listening to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast with Rebecca Larson. It's safe to say that our topic for today is one that is shrouded in mystery and misunderstanding. I am, of course, referring to the fourth wife of Henry VIII. Today, my wonderful guest is here to debunk the myths surrounding Anne of Cleves. I'm, of course, referring to the wonderful historian, author, and host of our hands-on history, Heather R. Darcy. Welcome. Hi. I haven't been on this side of things in a while. It has been quite some time, hasn't it? These are always my favorite episodes. Yes, I enjoy recording with you. It's, it's always a good time, and I think our listeners enjoy it, too. I hope so. I know they enjoy your birds. That's true. I did a, a Twitter vote to see how people felt about having the birds in the background. And I got to tell you, it was just a little bit in favor of the parrots. So I'm going to probably try and rotate. So the scene, I am not near the parrots, but I think next time I might be near the parrots and just kind of like rotate every other. <laughs> and they each need to have their own episode too. I think that's only fair. Yeah. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> Heather, are you ready to debunk some myths? I can't wait. It's about time we do this. I mean, we've had other interviews where we've talked about her and we've gone over these things, but I don't think we've ever just debunked them as we go. I think you're right. I think that's true, yeah. Let's start from the beginning with her, because I think the thing that we hear the most is that she was naive and she didn't know how things worked in the bedroom. What do you have to say about this? I believe that typically what people are thinking about, whether or not they're aware of it when they hear that myth, is... During the proceedings to have her marriage annulled, there was some alleged testimony from one of her ladies that the, I believe it was a countess, said to Anna, who's, you know, the Queen of England, when can we expect a little Duke of York? And that Anna allegedly replied, well, Henry comes and he kisses me good morning and he kisses me good night. Is that not enough? And one of two things can be taken from this. And of course, the more sinister one usually is, which has given rise to the myth, the the less sinister being that here you have the queen of england being questioned by one of her ladies on whether or not she's holding amorous congress with the king which that's just a rude conversation to have with someone who's beneath you uh socially in that setting or that she's completely ignorant and has no idea how babies are made i have a very difficult time believing that she did not know where babies came from or how they were made, considering that throughout her life in Cleves in Germany, she would have been in the Fallensima, which there's an article on my website, maidensandmanuscripts.com, that discusses the Fallensima. It's F-R-A-U-E-N-Z-I-M-M-E-R. But effectively, it's like a shadow court to the male court, and that's where the women would hang out all day, and they would sleep in there. And in Cleves specifically, there were ordinances about who could hold the keys to those chambers, and they would be locked at night. And anyone over the age of 12 that was male could not work in the Fallensima unless it was a physician. So women would be in the Fallensima and they would be pregnant. I'm sure some of them probably went into early labor. So it wasn't a mystery about women getting pregnant and having babies. And I'm as much as Anna did have a Catholic upbringing, I'm extremely hard pressed to believe that she was never exposed by anyone in the Fallensima during her 24 years of life in Germany, that that nobody bothered to talk to her at least a little bit about the birds and the bees. So I think that that myth came from that alleged testimony that was given for purposes of the annulment. And again, we have to keep in mind with with that testimony that simply goes to the fact that Anna and Henry never 
consummated their marriage because of course if they had consummated it then that means that henry would have to get a divorce so we also have to look at why that testimony if it's true was given i'm extremely hard pressed to believe that anna had no idea how marital relations worked and i think for the let's say the modern tudor fanatic who all they know is historical fiction or historical TV series, if they watched The Tudors and they saw that scene where the ambassadors come into the room to view Anne of Cleves, to see what she looks like for King Henry, and what they see is a woman completely covered, two women, her and her sister, completely covered so that you can't see anything. Can we talk about that a little bit? Is that a myth or did that really happen? Do we know? There is a grain of truth to it. It's not completely a myth. We don't know what exactly they were wearing. There was a complaint that the ambassadors, Henry's ambassadors, couldn't tell what they looked like because they were wearing so much clothing that all they could really see was part of their faces. If we look at Anna's Louvre portrait, the one that Hans Holbein did, the most famous one where she's wearing the red dress and she's got the big headdress on, that might obscure a person's face a little bit. She certainly isn't going to have her hair down. You know, if we think about English court fashion, they had the low cut necklines, even if they were wearing like a high cut kind of sheer blouse underneath it, you could still see that a little bit more form fitting. Whereas the German garments were looser. A sign of wealth was how much fabric you had on your clothing. So there were a lot more pleats, not really so much the trains, the dresses were kind of more of a bell shape. And again, the heavy headdresses, or if we look at the Rosenbach portrait, which is of course on the cover of my book, Anna, Duchess of Cleves, the King's Beloved Sister. She's wearing a large hat there that might have obscured part of her face. So we don't know exactly what the Fondamach sisters were wearing, but the ambassadors did complain that they couldn't get a good look at the girls. And then the vice chancellor of Cleves, who then became the chancellor a few years later, um, Heinrich Ba, called Oles Lega, of course, quips, what would you have me do, have them be shown to you in the nude. So (laughs) there is some truth to it. We just don't know what Anna and her sister were wearing. And really Holbein at the time was what, the only one who was able to lay eyes on her? I don't know how to answer that. He, the girls, they weren't hidden. They were in the Fallensema. They were produced for Henry's ambassadors. I don't know for how long they were produced. And I don't know how they were shown to them. We don't know what time of day it was. We don't know what the lighting was like. But Holbein probably had the longest access to her and would have been allowed to take sketches, I would imagine. So I don't know that he completely painted her from life or if he would have seen her, taken Mm -hmm. some sketches of her, and then gone back and created the famous portrait of her. Sure. Yeah, I think that's something we don't think about very often. We just assume he had full access. He painted her while she was sitting in front of him. And what he produced was a beautiful woman, I would say, and clearly Henry approved. And so he decides that, you know, let's do this. Let's get married and uh, goes through the marriage treaty with her brother. She comes to England. She arrives on English soil and has an encounter with King Henry where he allegedly comes in in disguise and she doesn't recognize him and rebuffs him and hurts his feelings. And that's when everything goes wrong, right? I don't think so. (laughs) What happened? We have to look at, again, why, when did that tale come out and why versus the German account? Neither one is going to be 100% the truth, but we can probably glean which one's more likely to be accurate. So Anna is at Rochester Castle 
I had the privilege of visiting that castle earlier this year and she would have been in there's this great hall, but it was divided in two and she would have been on one side of it with her ladies and any dignitaries from Cleves looking out a window and it's a square shaped room and there's not really you had to make an effort to get to the window. It wasn't like the window was embedded directly in the in the walls. There's kind of a, a more of an interior area and then a little bit of an exterior area with a walkway. So maybe some pillars kind of dividing the two spots. And then you have the exterior windows out of which she was looking when Henry arrived. What is true is that Henry appeared to arrive disguised, or at least she didn't know who he was right away. So whether that meant that he tried to pull some chivalric romantic thingy thingy, or if he, she just wasn't, didn't know what her husband looked like and couldn't distinguish him by his dress from the other gentleman in his company, we don't know. According to the German account, and this is reflected in Anna, Duchess of Cleves, the King's beloved sister, and then also a little bit more in Children of the House of Cleves, Anna and her siblings, which is coming out, I just found out in June of 2023. So definitely keep an eye out for that. Henry got along famously with her. He presented her with a crystal goblet, so like a rock crystal, so it looks like glass to, to modern eyes, but it's a rock crystal goblet with a gold foot and a gold lid that had diamonds and rubies in it. He presented her with a chain, which could be the chain that we see in that now uh, contested miniature that was previously identified as Catherine Howard. I'm not sure. That's pure speculation, but we know that he gave her gifts. Also, according to the German account, he stayed with her. They had dinner together. He spent the night not terribly far away from where she was so that he could have breakfast with her the next morning. So at some point she figured out who he was. And if he didn't like her, he sure as heck did a horrible job of showing he didn't like her. Now, that account was written shortly after her marriage to Henry, after the wedding. And that was a letter written by Olis Lega, the same guy who was the vice chancellor of Cleves and was present when Anna and her sister were presented to the English ambassadors. But Olis Lega wrote that report and sent it back home to Anna's mother and brother and sister. So that was, that was pretty soon after she arrives. When we look at the English account of, oh... Henry tried to, uh, to surprise her and she insulted him because she didn't recognize him and he found her so unattractive and yada, yada, yada. That story doesn't come out again until they're trying to secure this annulment in late June to early July of 1540, so six months later. And it's part of this attestation that Thomas Cromwell has to sign, an attestation being a legal document, basically like a sworn document saying, yes, everything in this is true. And Thomas Cromwell signed that document while he was in the Tower of London right after he found out he's getting his head chopped off. And then of course he writes his own letter in his own handwriting that completely echoes the attestation, which was a document that had been prepared and presented to him. And at the end of Cromwell's own letter, he signs it, I'm begging for mercy, mercy, mercy. So the reason why that story is important for supporting the annulment is again, Henry never said Anna was unattractive. He said he was not attracted to her which made it impossible for him to consummate the marriage. He never actually called her unattractive. Where did that saying about her having a loose belly and something about her breasts come from? I believe that did come from Henry's deposition. What that goes to is the second proposition that his princely heart never consented to the marriage because he knew inwardly that she was somebody else's wife. So that was not taken to mean 
that she had had a baby, it was taken to show that she was not a virgin. So one of the other grounds which Henry used to have the marriage annulled was that she was pre-contracted de presenti, which means immediately this, the moment that the contract signs, she's basically married to Francis of Lorraine. Whereas my research uncovered that it was de futuro, which means that there were conditions that her father had to fulfill for the marriage to take place. And between Anna being a child, she was about 10 years old, and the and Francis of Lorraine was nine years old, I believe, when that contract was created, and that by 1535, her father had not completed the terms, which was paying a giant sum of money, basically, that contract was actually terminated. But the reason why in this deposition for the annulment, Henry saying that he felt her breasts and her stomach and they felt saggy wasn't to show that she had a baby before, because that would have been a huge problem for Henry it, because she would have had it out of wedlock. It was to show that she was not a virgin and that she was somebody else's wife. So it's almost like the state of her body becomes matronly after she is married and is no longer a virgin versus after childbirth, which is how we think about it with modern sensibilities. This is the beautiful thing about your book is because you open our eyes to what really happened because these aren't the real reasons why Henry wanted to divorce her. No, it's all it's a it's a giant lawsuit, basically. And he's the one that was victorious because he got what he wanted. He got the annulment instead of a, a divorce. Anna was clever and agreed to the whole thing because she could see what situation she was in. I mean, her her escorts left for Germany pretty much right away after she got married because it was becoming increasingly dangerous for them to cross over imperial territory. And so when you look at the facts and what actually happened and look at the contemporary things and look at the reason why these documents that we look at today were created, it's also that Henry can get his annulment. Oh, hey, it's Rebecca here. I'm sorry to interrupt the show. I just want to quick do a shout out to all of my patrons. And if you love this show, you want to hear more of it, want to show your support, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash tutors dynasty. Click become a patron to find out more info. We got some cool stuff coming up. So let's get back to the show. I love that we're talking about this because there are so many myths surrounding Anne of Cleves, especially the one um, that goes something like she had children. Isn't that a great one? That's that's. (laughs) And it's because Henry was secretly coming to visit her. Well, I've heard three things. Um, I'm aware that there's a fiction book out there that proposes the idea that Anna had a child before she left Cleves. I don't believe that any primary source has ever been produced to show that. I find it extremely difficult to believe that she would have been in that sort of position. And, and that's not to say that young ladies in the Fallen Sima didn't have dalliances with young men. We know that Anna's father, brother, and famously grandfather did have illegitimate children, but that's not, that's not something that would have happened to someone as important as Anna. That opportunity would not have been allowed to be created. And again, if that were the case, Henry would probably have been a heck of a lot angrier at his ambassadors than Thomas Cromwell (laughs) for not sorting that one. And and then there's this idea that she had twins. I have no idea where that came from. She did not have twins. 
And then the, the, the one that makes the most sense, I guess, and we, we can trace that back to primary source gossip, if you will, is that she had a baby boy. And when that rumor came about, Catherine Howard was locked up in the tower. It's January of 1543, 42, 1542, excuse me. January of 1542, Anna and her brother are seeing a real chance for her to remarry Henry. And that would be a great thing because, you know, that war between her brother Wilhelm and Charles V is heating up. And if they can get Henry back on their side, maybe that'll help the emperor cool down a little bit so that he's not going against the United Duchies and England and France now that her brother's married to a French princess and Saxony. So there's real hope alive and they, and the ambassadors are going back and forth to seeing if there's fresh evidence to show that Anna is in fact free to marry Henry. But what had happened was is Anna had taken ill and one of her ladies had recently given birth to a baby. And so she brought the baby to Anna to help cheer up Anna in January, 1542. And it happened to be a boy. And so a rumor swiftly spread that Anna had given birth to a boy and it's just completely untrue. And when you look at the chronology of things and when Anna would have had to conceive, it was at a time that Henry was getting along just fine with Catherine Howard and there were no issues with her. I believe that you'd have to track it back to the August 1541 visit that Henry paid to Anna that we know about, which would have been really the only opportunity that we know about that he would have had to conceive a child with Anna, which would have made the baby extraordinarily premature on top of things. But that's where the rumors, the rumor of her having a child came from was some, some court gossip after Catherine Howard's fall when there's definitely a faction at court or at least people at court who are interested in seeing Henry and Anna remarry. I'm going to veer off a little bit because you just triggered me with something. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back to Catherine Howard. She's in the, the tower. Anne of Cleves would love to be married to Henry VIII again. We have mm -hmm. that instance. Then again, when he's looking to marry Catherine Parr, she's in the same situation again where she wants to marry him out of curiosity did she know and did her brother know all the things that henry and everyone had said about her in their testimonies for the annulment and divorce i believe her i believe so i believe that her brother wilhelm had a good idea of what was going on because there were a lot of really nasty things being said about henry over in germany and so there was definitely an idea also, I have to remember the year. It might not have been until after 1543, but there was a book published by a French person. And I, I mention it in Anna, Duchess of Cleves, but I go into it a bit more in Children of the House of Cleves, which comes out in 2023. It, it was supposed to be a letter written by Anna, but of course they misnamed her as Maria, who was her mother, <laughs> and her complaint against Henry and all the reasons why he left her and things like that. And it does hint at there being some public knowledge of what went on during the, the convocation that was the, the hearing basically for, for Henry to secure the annulment. So I don't know for sure, but I suspect that Wilhelm and Anna had a pretty darn good idea what was what was said in there. And that just goes to basically answer the question of whether or not she was jealous when Henry chose Catherine Parr over her. Oh, she was totally jealous. She was upset. Anna was really, really hoping to remarry Henry. And again, we still have that. We still have things brewing between 
Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, and Wilhelm, who's holding on to this piece of property that rightfully belongs to the emperor. And the Cleves War starts in late 1542 and carries over into 1543. I go into a bit more detail about this in Children of Cleves than I did in Anna, Duchess of Cleves. But Henry creates a secret pact or secret alliance with Charles V and doesn't want Wilhelm to find out for a while. So in the middle of the Cleves War in summer of 1543, he marries Catherine Parr. And by doing that, he makes it impossible for himself to marry Anna of Cleves and makes it impossible for him to revive the Anglo-Cleves alliance without taking more overt diplomatic action. And Anna thought that she was prettier than Catherine and was extremely upset when Henry married Catherine, um, Catherine Parr, excuse me. You kind of hinted at this already, or maybe you said it, that, you know, I think one of the, the myths that are out there is that people claim that she could have went home at any time. No, I don't think so. She, when the annulment happened, again, Cold War between Wilhelm and Charles V, that could have turned hot at any moment. And that was a serious concern as early as January of 1540. So pretty much right when she arrived. She, she did have a sweet setup in England, not going to lie there. But the other issue is who was going to pay for her to go home? Was it going to be Wilhelm coming to fetch her? Was Henry going to pay to send her home? Also, all of her letters between herself and her family and friends in Germany were being read. Part of the, part of the things or stipulations for Anna's remaining in England was that Henry was going to read all of her letters to and from Germany. And we and you know it's not like they could just hop on an airplane and fly back to Germany. No, they, they had to no. Well, by and then ship if she and... becomes if Anna is transported back to Germany, whether it's Henry or Wilhelm doing the transporting, and God forbid she's captured, whose fault is it? Right. Or what if her boat sank? What if her boat sank? <laughs> right. The what? white ship. You know. Yeah. So there. So it, it's not as easy as oh, I'm just going to go back home. For, for the multitude of reasons, first, like what you're talking about, you can't just hop on an airplane. Like this is a major undertaking. Secondly, who's going to pay for it? And thirdly, there's, there's a war, like it's coming. No one knows exactly when it's going to arrive, but the war is coming. And she's safer in England. She is. She is definitely safer in England. Uh, when, when the Cleves War does actually happen, multiple properties that were in Eulich, which was one of her mother's duchies of which her mother was an heiress were destroyed her sister amalia was put in great danger during that her mother actually died from heartbreak they say after Ulrich fell to the emperor i mean this this is pretty serious stuff this was not a simple little it's it's called the Ulrich feud it's it's one of the three names for this war it's the cleves war the third war of galdarian succession or the Ulrich feud but it was it was pretty serious. I mean, Charles V had some major artillery that had not been seen before that was brought to this battle. So it was definitely safer for Anna to stay in England. So Henry divorces her, gets the annulment. I always want to say divorce because that's what we always say, right? Yeah, it's the rhyme, isn't it? It is. She is often called the lucky wife. When you post something on social media about her, the initial reaction is she was the lucky one would you agree with that was she the lucky one no i don't think any of them were lucky and i don't think henry was lucky either one of my pet peeves is people saying how she was lucky because she kept her head 
that that makes literally no sense because there's no reason for Anna to be accused of treason or anything like that. Plus, if he would have randomly beheaded su the subject of a foreign land, right? Let alone a princess of a foreign country, that would have been a big problem for Henry. When we look at the two wives who were beheaded, they were both his own subjects. So Anna was never in danger of getting her head chopped off. As far as Lucky goes, I don't think you can really say that either. I mean, she went to England and, and she was going to be queen of England and be the mother of princes and rule and be benevolent and be more important than her older sister and her brother, which she was really excited about. And instead, she just ditched there. And it wasn't easy for her. I mean, under she did all right under Henry VIII, but as soon as he died, Edward VI and his uncles had no use for Anna. And she was constantly begging for more money and reduced to a certain extent to varying degrees of poverty and trying to maintain her estates. And then her friend Mary becomes queen, and that was pretty great for about six months. But then you have Wyatt's Rebellion, and Anna's implicated in that, and she has to be sent away from court. So I don't know that she was lucky, or at least I suppose I would ask the people who say that she was the lucky one, tell us why she was lucky. What about her life when we look at it in the context of the 16th century makes her lucky? What makes any of Henry's wives lucky, or what makes Henry lucky? I mean, Henry... I'm a bit of an apologist for him, I suppose. He didn't mean to be married six times. Anne Boleyn didn't mean to get her head chopped off. I have my, I, I have a book coming out. I believe it's in 2025 about Anne and her foibles, uh, bless her. Catherine of Aragon, if, if she wouldn't have been an infanta of, of Spain, mm -hmm. I'm sure that things would have gone differently for Henry's marital track. He was unlucky that Jane Seymour died. He was unlucky that his ministers couldn't figure out that by Henry marrying Anna, they were going to get roped into a war. <laughs> Catherine Howard, he had no reason to know of her, of her past history. And she was a teenager, you know, so it's just, it's one of those things where I, it just frustrates me when I hear people call Anna the lucky one. Well, none of these people were lucky. None of them were. And look what happened to poor Catherine Parr. She dies, what, a year and a half after Henry dies? She dies in childbirth. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, none of them were lucky. It was hard to be alive back then. What made Anna lucky? She she completely failed. It wasn't her fault, but she completely failed at everything she was supposed to accomplish in England. And that's a pretty heavy burden to bear. And then she gets trapped there. And it's not like it was an easy time to be a woman. No, no, <laughs> no, not at all. And she died young. I mean, she was 42 when she died. What year was that again? 1557. Anyway, to go back to the original question, do I think Anna was lucky? No, but I'd be curious to hear why she was lucky. If it's just because she outlived Henry VIII, oh, okay, well, that was actually miserable for her because <laughs> she didn't have any money. <laughs> right. Um, was she lucky because she didn't get her head chopped off? Well, no, because that it would have taken an extraordinary set of circumstances for her to have committed treason to such a high degree that it would be allowable for Henry to behead a subject of the Holy Roman Empire, let alone of the foreign nation of the United Duchies of Julius Kefeberg. Was she lucky because she had all these big properties? Yes, but they were expensive to maintain. Yeah, that's so. part. That, I think that's part that's often left out, isn't it? Yeah. Heather R. Darcy, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be here, and and I, it's nice to be on this side. It's been a little while since you know I've done mm -hmm. one of these, so um, 
you know, I'll have to come back when we get closer to Children of the House of Cleves coming out. We'll have to have all the courtly gossip from the Cleves court. Definitely. I can't wait for that. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you until then? My website is maidensandmanuscripts.com. You can also reach out to me from there. There's a contact page. There's over 200 articles on there. I'm trying to update it about once a month at this rate. I'm on a bit of a bender of uh, Polish history. I just started that, but there's a lot of German history. Now there's a little bit of Polish history. Of course, there's English history and smatterings of French history. I'm also on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at HR Darcy history. And remember Darcy Darcy has that unique spelling of D-A-R-S-I-E. I'm on Instagram as eight at H Darcy history. Cause I forgot I had the middle initial of R. So at H Darcy history on Twitter, or excuse me, Instagram at HR Darcy history on the Twitter. I'm also on Facebook under Heather R. Darcy historian. And I am the founder and one of the moderators of Tudor Renaissance and Reformation history group. So you can find me all those different places. I update Twitter and Instagram the most often, and you can reach out to me through any of those. I always love to hear from people. And you're also the host of Hands-On History. What do we have well, to look? Yes, of course. Sorry. <laughs> what, I forgot about that one. What, but, do, what do we have to look forward to from you coming up as far as guests go? We have someone from Shaw House, which is another historic house. So I'm excited about that. I'm working on... So let me tell you a little bit about the goal of Hands-On History, because I know you, you and I, of course, have talked about this, but I don't think our listeners are aware of it. So part of what I'm trying to do with Hands-On History is find people who interact with history for their job. So different from what I'm doing today. Like today I'm coming and talking to you, Rebecca, about a person, a specific historic figure. I, I, my goal with Hands on History is to talk to people who have jobs that involve history. And so what a day is like at their job, what type of training they have to have, if there's any special education they need, things that they would want someone who's starting to do what they're, to do that type of job, like what they need to know to get involved with that so that people can learn that it's not just writing books it's not just podcasts. It's not just teaching that can be careers for a person who's interested in history. There are other jobs out there. So we have someone who works at an historic house in England. I'm hoping to find some curators and hopefully an archaeologist to talk to, too. And they, the people may not specialize specifically in the Tudor time period or the early modern time period, but they should be able to give us an idea of what it's like to, to be involved with history. Yeah, and I love the idea that you came up with for this. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. Tudor's Dynasty. It's been a pleasure. And listeners, thank you so much for being here and and lending us your ear. And uh, looking forward to next time I'm back and hopefully hearing from some of you.